Mr. Goldsmith, if you please... Welcome to the Goldsmith Odyssey, a chronological journey through the filmography of composer Jerry Goldsmith. I'm Clark. I'm Yavar. And I'm Jens. And we have a very special guest today. Oh, that would be me. I'm uh, Lee Phillips. It's a delight to have you on the program with us today. We're all big fans of your work, uh, particularly your Goldsmith-themed work, but everything you do. This is our first intercontinental recording, so... Thank you, Lee, for staying up late and recording with us so that we can work it out time-wise. That's absolutely fine. It's my pleasure. I'm sat here in my pajamas with a cup of hot chocolate, so uh, it's all good. That sounds like a delight. Lee is actually the reason we're breaking chronology a little bit here. We're skipping over Jerry Goldsmith's very first thriller score, which he composed at the very end of 1960 for an episode called The Cheaters, because The Poisoner is one of Lee's favorite thriller episode scores, and one of the reasons he pursued the thriller re-recordings for Tadlow. So in order for it to fit in the scheduling, we're jumping ahead, but fear not, we'll move back to the cheaters next time. Appropriate that we're cheating on the cheaters a little bit. Precisely. So Lee, can you fill us in a little bit on how you got into film music in the first place, how you became a fan of it, and Goldsmith in particular? Oh, let me think about it. Yeah, yeah, Star Wars was probably one of the most impactful moments as a little four-year-old going to see that movie with that music as I instantly became a fanboy. And my first soundtrack album when I was old enough to consider buying soundtrack albums was Return of the Jedi. And then E.T. bought in that order. So John Williams was, I guess, my initial introduction to film music but i used to go to the cinema a lot with my grandfather and for years there was a little tune that was stuck in my head and i didn't know where it came from you know kind of like when you're a little kid and you're playing superheroes or whatever and you've got your own theme tune and um i think you need to to like whiz forward a couple of years until i was about like 14 or 15 and star trek the motion picture came on television it was shown on terrestrial tv for the first time and the main titles came on boom that was it that literally had been the piece of music that had been running around my head when i was a little kid i didn't know what it was until then and it was star trek so instantly i wanted to find out more i thought i'll go to the record shop and i'll order something or i'll buy something by jerry goldsmith because this guy's amazing and everything is going to sound like star trek (laughs) the first lp i picked up was alien (laughs) uh and it it was uh it was actually uh shocking uh, yeah i was sort of like horrified when i started playing it but i started playing it again and i played it again and the more i played it the more i started to like it and the more i got into it and from that point onwards i kind of like because it was the silver screen release oddly enough the one that james produced um, i found silver's 
address on the back of the LP, which of course you could then order the physical catalog from them. And of course, this thing was loaded with Goldsmith. So the next thing I ordered was Supergirl. And that's always been one of my absolute favorite scores. I adore it. That was essentially my intro to Goldsmith and soundtracks in general. Started off with Williams, but then Star Trek came along or had always been there in the background. And um, when I discovered what it was and who it was, it was all downhill from that point onwards. That's really cool. Jerry Goldsmith had been in your heart all along. Absolutely. I think one thing we should add to that, uh, what exactly it is that Lee does that has brought such joy to our ears over the years? It may be the most painstaking work related to film music. I want to say, because it's not like you've got what a composer has to start with and you're orchestrating it. It's you're trying to recreate the original orchestrations just by ear. You know, not that you never do other orchestration work, but that's the most challenging thing you've done. And correct me if I'm wrong, Lee, but that's what you've done for the Thriller scores. Yeah, all of the suites for Thrillers 1 and 2 were taken from the music and effects track. Yeah, so you didn't have any sort of written sketches or anything like that to work with? Uh, No, there were no dots involved. Can you give us kind of a background on how you got into music and composing and reconstruction? Yeah, sure. I mean, I took composition as a major in music college. I had, I suppose, like anybody who was a, a fan of film music or any composer who was a fan of film music, I had aspirations to become a film composer myself. I mean, I'd always been interested in orchestration and arranging but i can't say that that career was even on my radar when i was in my 20s i my sights firmly fixed on being a composer i managed to secure some good jobs a lot of theater work some independent film work but in my downtime i literally just started doing reconstructions if you will or arrangements of individual cues from scores that i liked just for fun So it wasn't even a side job at first, it was like a a hobby. Uh, Yes, I was very much the hobbyist as far as reconstruction was concerned. I remember somehow managing to secure some sketches from The Final Conflict, which was my favorite Goldsmith score. The bits that I managed to get hold of were the main titles, Uh, Trial Run and The Final Conflict, the big Numen-esque finale cue. I tried reorchestrating, well, not reorchestrating, but but orchestrating that again from the sketch material. Finished it, and this must have been the late 1990s.
whiz forward a couple of years and I don't even know how they got in contact or where they got the information from, but Golden State Pops Orchestra somehow managed... Based in California. Yes, yes. They, they, they somehow managed to get wind to the fact that I'd done this arrangement and they asked if they could premiere it in one of their concerts. And was that the foot in the door as far as the soundtrack labels noticing you? No, 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 no not at all. That was another job with a Halle Orchestra, which led to doing a few arrangements for Silver Screen. James, obviously, uh, James Fitzpatrick was fixing the sessions. Would I know the album? Um, yeah. The first stuff I did for Silver Screen was on Film Music 2009. I think the Iron Man was the first arrangement I did for Silver. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, I think James had taken my name from the chart that was in the session and sort of like filed it under, might be good to use this guy. Literally a couple of months later, I had an email from James asking if I wanted to help reconstruct Exodus. So that was your first project with Tadlow? That was my first Tadlow project, but that wasn't me alone. There were at least three other orchestrators involved in that, Adam Saunders being one of them. I can't remember who else was involved. But as it happens, the only cues that I ended up doing true to form it was the last 15 or 20 minutes of the score and it was they were all the takedown cues all the hardest work <laughs> i'm not going to say it's the hardest work but believe me whenever i get a hold of some dots or some sketches it's like christmas twice over but i mean <laughs> that was such a great album and a wonderful score to work on a dream to have restored for me oh yeah I mean, it's absolutely super i mean it's so rich thematically there's interesting things that go on within the orchestra itself i mean as an orchestrator or as a, it's a never-ending learning process even today when i've reached some degree of proficiency there's always something that i'll find in a work that absolutely blows my mind and makes me feel like i'm back in school again and i took a lot from exodus it was really really interesting to see the way Ernest Gold utilized the, the, the ensemble. This is the other great thing about orchestration is the fact that 
everybody does things differently. You find common practice threads or threads of common practice through umpteen works by umpteen composers. But in terms of them all treating instrumentation the same way, that rarely happens with the good stuff. Obviously, I, I don't orchestrate full time. I also lecture in film composition specifically. And, you know, when I get the kids asking, oh, so how do you compose? You know, do we just write this at the piano and then try and arrange it afterwards? I mean, if, if they're asking for a personal opinion, I'm kind of thinking, well, you, you can sort out your notes at the piano. But for me, orchestration is kind of like an intrinsic part of the whole thing. It's not like, you know, you go right to the piano and then you arrange it afterwards. You do it from the ground level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got, an, you've got to have an overall idea of the thing from the get-go. At least that's the, that's the way that I see it. Is there anything particularly about Goldsmith's orchestration style you would say sets him apart that you could identify, or is it more intangible than that? No, it's the clarity in Goldsmith's writing. Like all the lines are transparent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Except for when he's kind of going full Ravel or Debussy mode, that you know, we get something like Legend or sort of passages in like Crossing and things like that, which are really, really impressionistic. That stuff is layers, it's texture. But when you're kind of finding him just writing things, I don't know, to put this normally, or just an everyday melody or an everyday action cue, there's a tangible clarity to the music. It's almost a neoclassical approach. If you listen long enough, you can kind of pinpoint individual lines, individual instruments. It's all there. It doesn't take a great deal of deeper listening to actually, you know, zone in on particular lines. It's very, very clean. With Jerry writing in that way, do you consider him an easier composer to reconstruct than, you know, say a composer that blends the orchestrations more and, and makes it so it's not as transparent with the lines? To some degrees, yes. But I think when you come across somebody who seems almost like deceptively straightforward to transcribe or to understand, there's ultimately a little whammy or nasty little surprise hidden in the engine. And with Goldsmith, it's usually his harmonic practice, his use of harmony is unusual, his unusual changes of harmony. That he, uh, you know, he takes things to where one wouldn't expect them to go. Some of the chords are not really, you, you can't really analyze them. Even if you're a jazzer, you can't say, oh yeah, that's a like, minor chord with an added six and a flat and ninth. And some of the chords that he writes though, are absolutely, you know, sort of defied description. They're kind of like just chromatic assemblies and sorting through that sort of stuff can be a bit of a nightmare. The most recent thing that I've done, which is Having an airing, I think, next week in Film Music Prague Festival is a 15-minute suite from Legend. I know the score backwards. It's one of my all-time favorite albums. Um, you know, there's not a month that it doesn't get an airing whilst I'm wandering around. Especially if I'm wandering around randomly in a woods, I'll put on Legend because it makes the walk that much more interesting. And with Legend, I kind of like blasely said, oh, yes, I'll do the dress waltz as the centerpiece. And then I started working on the dress waltz. This isn't ex an exaggeration, but it took five hours to do 30 bars on one particular day. Wow. It's so densely packed with stuff.
he pulls a double whammy on this one because he's kind of like got this this ism in legend is that he kind of writes parallel passages but in slightly different tonalities for different instruments so it's like not as though you're even hanging around in the same key it's absolutely insane but exciting when you finally get it right it's kind of disheartening that legend even has to be reconstructed i guess the written scores for that don't survive to be accessed and used i think the sketches at least for goldsmith stuff are nicely and safely tucked away in the herrick but the problem there is one of gatekeeping Sometimes it takes weeks to get permission, and then you need to get the stuff copied. And and, and by that time, you, you've actually missed the gig. That actually was the problem with the Blue Max. I mean, the Blue Max was a transcript job from beginning to end. We couldn't get access to the dots, with the exception of the suite, which Goldsmith recorded with the Philharmonia back in 80-something. So you had a little bit of something to start with for the Blue Max, but as far as I understand, for the Salamander, which was... If I'm not mistaken, your first Goldsmith project for Tadlow, there was just nothing to even try and get, right? That was from the movie. Yeah, I mean, any materials pertaining to Salamander had gone AWOL. I mean, I don't know who it was a case of, you know, Goldsmith holding so much contempt for the thing himself that he burned the manuscripts. He didn't even save a copy of the music for himself, which I thought was kind of strange at, at that point in his career in the 80s. Yeah, quite. He kept everything. So the fact that the salamander has gone walkies makes the situation all the more mysterious. We've just got no idea why it's disappeared off the face of the planet. You know, it's just a shame that the film didn't do the same thing. But, um, anyway, <laughs> I was about to ask you what your opinion of the movie was. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're working directly from the source on something, when you're working, you know, from the salamander or from one of these thriller episodes, are there ever instances where either because the music is mixed particularly low or because the sound effects are particularly loud and obtrusive where it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what he was doing musically? Have you run into anything like that? Yeah, you ask good questions. Okay, so with Salamander, I watched the film once and that's pretty much all I could bear. I'm sorry, I literally still wake up screaming to the image of Franco Nero's wobbly buttocks in a, um, <laughs> in a G-string being thrown around by this crazy torturer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sounds like you won't be joining the podcast for the Salamander episode. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I don't have to watch it again, it's okay, because oh, the, the, the music is quite wonderful in it. I mean, essentially, I ripped the audio directly from, I think it was the Czech DVD, because the Czech DVD was one of the only ones that had the main title, the end titles intact in full, which is how we were able to record them. I work on everything in a linear fashion. I don't do one bit and then move to an easy bit and then go back over things. Everything is done in order. So I mean, it's a case of, say, for instance, the car chase, which I, I should really say in inverted commas because you know, it was 30 miles per hour around a roundabout <laughs> isn't the most exciting thing. It's even less of a chase than the car chase in the challenge. There are push bikes going faster. I'm sorry, this, this is a digression, but I'm sure at one point there's a woman who kind of just like stops on a zebra crossing and waits for the cars to pass before. I mean, it's so casual. I was like, oh, yeah, another day in Rome, another car chase, no problem. But you wouldn't know that from Goldsmith's music. You know, he writes this exciting thing to try and give it some momentum. The music that he wrote for that sequence is outrageous. It's one of my favorite cues in the film. It was one of my favorite cues to work on because it's just so ballsy. 
it's like Goldsmith imagined a better film. He imagined he was writing for a better film than he actually was writing for. He seemed to do that with some consistency. I mean, it's funny, he gave the film, this terrible film, his A-game, but then he didn't think enough of it to save a copy of the score. He thought enough of it to write a completely exciting and moving and gorgeous score to the film he imagined in his head, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that love theme is just amazing. Uh, and there's so much yeah. great stuff in it. But sorry, I totally dodged the question. I take, say, for instance, and the car chase, which is absolutely loaded with sound effects. And it actually does sound, I mean, the sound effects are actually more exciting than the thing itself. So the car chase is really cool in audio only. For the most part, I can kind of uh, use EQ on my sort of like transcription program just to try and filter out certain noises so I can hone in on, on, on certain lines. But whenever I get a moment that is totally fudgy, like there's an explosion or, you know, there's like rapid gunfire and the sound elements are totally obliterated. What I'll do is I'll extrapolate. I'll see what comes before. I'll see what comes after. And then I'll compose a joining passage that hopefully is in sync with the style or in keeping with the style so much so that nobody spots the join. <laughs> it's like a patch. I mean, with Salamander, it certainly seemed to work that nobody was going, hang about, that doesn't sound like Goldsmith. It must have been a sort of fairly convincing job, probably. Was Thriller one of the things that you were kind of doing on the side for fun as a hobby? Or did you start working on that when James Fitzpatrick got in touch with you? Well, Thriller's got quite a long history. I mean, I first started looking for the possibility of doing it about five years ago. And was that on your own, like independently at the time? Well, Thriller was originally going to be my Kickstarter project which was going to be recorded with Tadlow. So the first thing I did was I ran the feasibility poll to see what people wanted. And it was really so very close with Thriller and Lionheart. I mean, to some extent, I'm glad that Thriller pipped it to the post because it actually was a much more realistic proposition because obviously it's so much cheaper to record. But what happened was I had some initial conversations with James who priced the project up. And he said, I tell you what, I'll meet you halfway with it. So if you can raise this amount, then I'll put in the remaining 50%. That was the plan. So I basically then just got to work on the suites. The whole album was probably orchestrated over the space of a month, I think. I was trying to do sort of like a suite a week or two suites a week. It, it depends how they were flowing, how easy or how difficult they were. It kind of went quiet for a while, and then I remember it was it was actually on my birthday. I had an email from James saying, so when are we recording Thriller? I said, well, you know, I'm still in the middle of doing the scores. I mean, it's just whenever Becky can get the parts ready, and um, they would be good to go. I said, obviously, I've got to try and raise the money first. And he literally just sent a response saying, don't bother, let's just record it. That's great. Oh, wow, so you were off the hook. You're still credited as a producer on those albums, I think, for the first time in the Tadlow album history, and is that because you were donating your time to reconstruct them? Uh, yes, there was, there, there, was, um, there was no money involved with the reconstruction. It's like, here it is. I guess, were the thrillers, were they part of your introduction to Goldsmith's music, or how did you get so in love with his output on that show, which I think exceeded his output for any other television series that he ever did in terms of quantity? It was a happy accident. YouTube. 
I was trolling through YouTube um, probably about five years ago when all this interesting thriller first started. I came across the end credits for the Grim Reaper and uh, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not familiar with, with, with this at all. So I saw it was Goldsmith who'd written it. I, so I clicked on the video and then I clicked on it again and then I clicked <laughs> on it again. I literally just sat there with like my, my mouth open. I just thought, Jesus, why, why have I never heard this? What is going on? started watching the thriller episodes and the, the next one that came up um i actually watched the grim reaper absolutely loved it i'm a big kind of universal horror fan so boris karloff doing a show i was like yes boris this is terrific but the show that came up immediately after grim reaper was the poisoner and again this just like totally blew me away i mean it's like every episode every score really something i mean so resonant i mean it really packed a punch it was all so fresh and from that point onwards it was just gestating in the back of my mind you must record thriller you must record thriller and then um, <laughs> <laughs> eventually my inner voice got the better of me and now we've done two of them that's so interesting that this is a relatively recent obsession or passion of yours you know, I would have predicted maybe you grew up watching Thriller or, or something like that, but you just discovered it on YouTube a few years ago. I think it is a matter of those videos circulating in the last couple of years that people have actually been discovering like, oh man, there are some like real themes in this. Yes. The other thing, of course, is that as far as the UK is concerned, Thriller would largely have been kind of like an unknown quantity to us. It was something that was Probably, or I should imagine, was only aired in, in the US. I might be wrong about that, but I certainly can't remember ever coming across the show on terrestrial television over here. Yeah, I don't know what its cultural footprint was like back when it originally aired, but now it's a show you really don't hear talked about that often when people talk about classic anthology TV. It's kind of faded from public memory, so I'm glad that more people seem to be discovering it and examining it. But it seems to have a pretty passionate cult following though yeah more so than many anthology shows of the era besides twilight zone or maybe outer limits i'd say thriller is probably 
rounds out that triumvirate of the 60s anthology shows. If you compare it to like the Alcoa Theater or Climax or any of those things, then, then yeah, it's it's made it out okay. It's more remembered. And, and, and Playhouse obviously, 90. Yeah, Playhouse 90 for sure. <laughs> but Thriller's obviously remembered enough that this first volume was successful enough to spawn a second one. It's rare for a re-recording or for a new recording, as James prefers, to actually you know, make a profit. But as I understand it, because of the smaller size of the orchestras, that was actually possible with Thriller. It would have been relatively, uh, I, I, I put an emphasis on the word relatively cheap to record. And I think also that perhaps with Thriller, we managed to tap into... Um, horror fans? Yeah, exactly. The fan base for horror in general is huge. And I think that when this album came out, which is obviously aimed in a way at that type of audience, then it was almost like an untapped revenue stream. Interesting. So speaking of that, it sounds like you may be able to break some news on the podcast about a potential Kickstarter for a third and final thriller volume to finish off Jerry's contribution to the series. I think it would make sense. There are a few Goldsmith suites left to do. There are four scores left that are unrepresented. Right, which would then leave us with some space on the album to do some Morton Stevens as well. And I know that there's been some interest. There were questions asked as to why the albums didn't include any of Mort Stevens's contributions to the show. The bottom line answer is that they were always going to be Goldsmith albums. Calling them questions is putting it mildly. I think you had a lot of people accusing you of neglecting Morton Stevens' fine work for the series. And I concede it is very fine work, but it's funny that for a still fairly expensive new recording, people would expect you to not focus on the most financially viable composer in the current film music market. That also has got to be a consideration. I think if I'd been a huge Morton Stevens fan myself, the story might have been different. I may have pushed to make it, um, I was going to say even Stevens, but that would be a terrible pun. Uh, <laughs> but then you wouldn't have gotten to all of the Goldsmith ones. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is that I'm a huge Goldsmith fan. So it was a Goldsmith project that I wanted to do. And it was always going to be like that. But if the interest is there to have some of the Mort Stevens episodes on one of the albums, then I don't see any reason why we can't at least just run a Kickstarter and see if it comes to fruition. I mean, the good thing about Kickstarter is that it's pretty much cut and dry. If enough people want it, they'll pay for it, it'll get recorded. Do you have any, if it does come to fruition, do you have any Stevens scores in mind that uh, you have an eye on for including on that album? Uh, so far, Pigeons from Hell is the first one on the list. Aside from that, then... Um, Everyone brings that one up. Yeah, it's a great score. And aside from that... It'll be a case of re-watching the episodes and seeing what will fit in with the overall concept or feel of the album. That'll likely run around March or April time when I've had a chance to look at some of the materials. If you've still got extra space on there after a Morton Stevens score, I just want to put it out there now. There's this great work, 1,489 words, that he wrote for radio in 1957. And I think it would fit right in tone-wise, at least the Highwayman portion of it. The Highwayman actually is reminiscent of some of the more lyrical thriller scores. Right. right. Yeah. When it goes to like Hayfork and Bill Hook, 
Oh, it's got that sort of an English pastoral feel to it. Exactly. Which, by the way, not to spoil our score discussion of The Poisoner too much, but do I detect like a hint of English folk melody? And it's almost like a green sleeves type quality sometimes to the harpsichord parts. Yeah, it's uh, mainly to do with the setting of his harmony that it's kind of like edging towards modality rather than sort of baroque diatonic stuff. So it's kind of got that folky feel to it. Yeah, that's that's, that's very much on the money. Mm. You mentioned the Grim Reaper before, and that's the score that this seems to foreshadow the most, at least in the strings. Yes. The more you delve into, or the deeper you delve into the thriller scores, and especially when you get to, I suppose, work on them quite closely, you get to see the patterns and the isms that Goldsmith has a tendency to utilize throughout the series. He's definitely got a modus operandi when it comes to his approach to the thriller scores. And I think a lot of that has got to do with the time that he didn't have to write the stuff. You know, it's it's funny. I keep asking, not you, but other people, you know, looking for the intellectual or the the motive behind or the, the, the motivation behind. There wasn't time for motivation. You know, we were doing... I can't speak for the writers, I can't speak for the actors, I can't speak for... But as a composer, I mean, you're, you're jumping from one show to the other, week in and week out. There's no time for motivation. you got to write 30 minutes of music in, you know, in four days, and you're lucky to get anything done. You know, anything on paper will... Yeah, not everything will work, dramatically. Well, it seemed, in my case, it seemed to most of it seemed to work, which was sort of... He's sort of lucky or something. I don't know. Maybe it's instincts. Maybe it's dramatic. But I think a lot of it, it goes back to what I was saying about you know, you know, having a dramatic instinct, and uh, you just sort of know what's what, what's the right thing to do, and just have to translate in, that into musical terms. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of time to sit and think, and there was no time to, to ruminate, you know, about this character and that character, or what's the underlying motif of this, and. Uh, as a matter of fact, just get it done, get it into the copyists. In that era of film television, when you were doing Thriller Review, or maybe you did a few Kildares at MGM, would you have a whole week to write a score? Or maybe longer? No. In Thriller, you'd get the show on Friday and have to record it Monday morning. You'd literally have only three days to do yeah, it? Yeah. The, 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 the schedules at, at Review in those days were impossible. Did his... Commitment to CBS end definitively at some point in 1960, or, I mean, maybe he transitioned to like a freelance sort of basis, because we covered about how he had to credit his brother-in-law, who was also a composer, for the theme he wrote to Black Saddle, since he was under contract to CBS. But clearly, by the end of 1960, when he did The Cheaters, he must have been out of that, because he was able to score the whole episode and get credited for it. Yavar, I appreciate the segue. (laughs) So he didn't pick up my option. They fired me. Why did they fire you? There was no need for me anymore. The shows were all going off the air, and uh, there was no need. Plows 90 was off the air. That was, that was it. Dramatic television was, was through. Live dramatic television was through. It was all going to be film. And there was no need to keep me on. Keep me on. So I, just, I did that last Twilight Zone, I think, as freelance. That last Twilight Zone of yours was The Invaders. Yeah, and I think I did it as a freelance. And that aired in January of 61. Does that mean that you your contract was up at the end of 1960? I think it was. Okay. What did you do then? I was terrified. 
because all these years I got a check every week. Okay, now I read his insane output during 1961 as like his psychological reaction to losing his CBS contract. Like, I've got to work, and he just went totally workaholic bonkers. His most workaholic year comes immediately upon losing his seven-year deal, basically. And it's kind of the best thing that could have happened to him, really, because you could just picture him hanging out at CBS and continuing to write music through the 60s and staying in television if his contract had been renewed, perhaps. So we're going to save sort of the details of how Jerry got his first thriller assignment until next time when we discuss that, the, the Cheaters episode. And also, we don't want to talk about the theme this time, since that's not Jerry Goldsmith. You guys can cover it. And it goes with the cheaters better. We can discuss, yeah, Pete Rugolo next time. So one thing I always do is I'll mention the director and writer of the episode really quick. The director on this is Herschel Doughty, who was a reliable and prolific TV guy, but most relevant to us right now because he directed 16 episodes of Thriller, six of which with Jerry Goldsmith, uh, The Poisoner, Hayfalk and Bill Hook, Late Date, The Grim Reaper, The Weird Tailor, God Grant That She Lies Still, and Masquerade. Wow, and I think all of those are ones that Lee has already reconstructed and recorded. He seemed to have a good uh, hit ratio with uh, the music. Oh yeah, uh, Robert Hardy Andrews, the writer on this episode, he also wrote God Grant That She Lies Still and The Bride Who Died Twice. So there's a, a good Venn diagram overlap between the three of them. And Robert Hardy Andrews clearly based The Prisoner on the true story of Thomas Griffith's Wainwright. When I was watching the episode preparing for this podcast, the plot seemed at once far-fetched and oddly familiar to me. And that's when it struck me. And this is, I, I missed this the first time because uh, Karloff actually mentions Oscar Wilde. And that in turn made me remember Oscar Wilde's wonderful pen, pencil, and poison. The story as adapted here is clearly not the true story. But it is the legend of Wainwright the Poisoner, incorporating many of the embellishments of the time, such as the ring with the special compartment that he keeps the poison in, for instance. And acknowledging the fact that it is somewhat fictionalized, they do change the name of the character slightly to Thomas Edward Griffith. Yeah, they're uh, not doing much to hide the real-life inspiration here. We should probably get to the plot summary. Oh, one thing about spoilers. This is a story about a guy who poisons a bunch of people, <laughs> so I don't think we'll get around spoiling some of the deaths, but we're going to save the very end for the spoiler section. Mild spoilers now if you want to go to YouTube and check out the episode completely clean. There you go. Well, let me tell folks a little bit about what happens in The Poisoner. This episode tells the story of Thomas Edward Griffith, who's played by Murray Matheson. He's an English writer, painter, and critic who has just gotten married to the lovely Frances, played by Sarah Marshall. Alas, shortly after the marriage, Frances's sneering mother-in-law, Mrs. Abercrombie, who's played by Brenda Forbes, and wheelchair-bound sister Helen, played by Jennifer Rain, arrive, declaring that they'll be living with Thomas and his new bride from now on. Frustrated by this new arrangement and facing serious financial difficulties, Thomas decides to try poisoning his way out of the predicament. He wastes little time in finding ways to dispose of his mother-in-law, Helen, and even his miserly Uncle George, who's played by Maurice Dallimore. As the bodies pile up, the authorities grow increasingly suspicious. Will Thomas ever be punished for his dastardly deeds? So, Yavar, you wanted to talk about the themes. Well, yeah, because for me, when I was listening to this score, there were a couple of themes and motifs that were sort of obvious. 
but other ones only revealed themselves after I listened to it more and more and I heard those repeating bits. I thought it might be helpful to our listeners to just kind of call out some of those to keep their eyes open for. Have a little roadmap to work from as we're going through these. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to analyze them in detail yet, or, or, you know, we can talk about them more when they get used in cues. But there's a lovely, what I would call the main theme that we first hear over the cast introduction. There's what I would say is a, the basis of this motif is just like a two-note idea that I think represents the poison. It rises, then it falls, and then it rises again. Mm -hmm. I know the one you're talking about. Oh, that's excellent. If you can actually recreate them, that'd be great to incorporate. Yeah, it'll be terrific. Then there's this kind of threatening, rumbling harpsichord motif that recurs a lot. I know the one you mean. And there's like a, what I would describe as a devilish fiddle motif. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of Danse Macabre by Saint-Saëns or, or that sort of scratchy fiddle, like evil. And then there's this sort of um, violent flourish motif oh, yeah. that comes up sometimes. I believe that's actually the theme for Francis, his wife, mm-hmm. just based on where it's used in the show. For instance, it makes its first appearance while he's defacing her portrait at the beginning of the episode. Lee, from your work, you know, working with the score in written form, were there any other things that jumped out to you as recurring ideas? This is kind of where Goldsmith's sort of complete mastery of the technical elements of composition really comes into it. It's just like the sheer economy of the writing. The motifs that he most prominently introduces, I mean, the ones you've already mentioned, this are like, you know, the harpsichord thing that... Um... That always seems to signify something poisonary about to happen. <laughs> Whenever he's about to do away with somebody, that's almost like used as a harbinger. And then you've got that other sort of like suspenseful build, the one that you mentioned about the rising and falling two-note figuration, you know, that one. I mean, the thing is with that is later on in the queue, when there's like a really dramatic gesture, he just uses the same thing, but he alters the rhythm. So it's da-dum, 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 da-dum. And it's scored in a much, much fuller way, but it's actually just the same piece of music, repurposed and slightly rearranged. And then, of course, you've got the English pastoral theme that you've already mentioned. curious as to the purpose of it because there are certain points at which it's used 
is it Goldsmith wanting us to feel some sort of empathy for the victims, which sometimes I find a little bit difficult because by the end of the episode, you're hoping that they're going to die anyway because they're such wretched characters. Or is it, I mean, the thing is, it's scored for harpsichord. It's all very elegant. It's scored for strings. It's all really elegant. It's almost as though it's perhaps Goldsmith's attempt at giving us an impression of Griffith's public face, this idea of urbane sophistication. Because it crops up at such weird times. It seems to be accompanying just him at occasional moments. And I thought it was maybe representing his cultured side. And of course, you know, because he uses his skills in such sordid ways, that's why we hear that theme turned into something much more sinister at various points throughout the episode. Yes. We should probably mention at this point that we're going to, in a large way, go back to a kind of style that we did early on in our earliest episodes of the podcast and not cover every single cue of the score. We want to be able to focus more in depth and the pieces that are, you know, a little less interesting or a little less essential, we're just kind of going to skip over a bit and people can watch the episode for themselves and discover some extra music. But as soon as we get into doing two thrillers per episode, it would just be wholly unmanageable to try and cover every single piece Jerry wrote. These are not short scores. Right. There's something, what, like 20 cues or so in this score? Yeah, covering two thrillers in one podcast is not the same as covering two Twilight Zone scores in one podcast. So let's discuss this opening cue. This is the prologue. Well, this is the prologue, but no official cue titles survive for this. The records were not saved, I suppose. So Lee had to make up his own cue titles for the Tadlow album. I don't think we'll bother referring to cue titles yeah. in this since we don't have Goldsmith's official ones. Yeah, we'll, we'll just get into the scenes like we do in these cases. Well, it opens with this very memorable and arresting opening with kind of a churning harpsichord. You don't usually think of a harpsichord being a thing you describe as churning, but for me it's like this turbulent music as he rides up in the carriage to his home and kind of entering, I guess it's called in media ray or something, we're entering in the middle of the action rather than at the beginning. Yeah. Record scratch. You're probably wondering how I got in this situation. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thomas Griffith basically... <laughs> standing in front of a giant portrait of his wife that he painted, talking about how he doesn't love her anymore, how he must have been mad when he painted it, thinking that she was beautiful, pouring brandy from a decanter, explaining to his wife about, you know, his poison ring and how undetectable the poison is, and pours her a glass and tauntingly offers it to her, as you do. Yes. It's a famous Borgia ring, apparently, this little device he has. Hmm. So something that may have been used in other historical poisonings over the years. Yeah, after that churning harpsichord opening is when that devilish fiddle motif is first introduced. But then afterwards, I guess there is one more idea in the score I forgot to bring up earlier, which is the string orchestra moments where they kind of do this trill figure which to me looks forward a lot to seconds. It's even yes. uh, in a much more warm vein, the artist who did not want to paint, you know, those high strings that, that's a trill, right, Lee? Um, yeah, I know the bit you're talking about. I mean, just mentioned Goldsmith's constant, I guess, need to be economical with musical material. The stuff that the strings have after, you know, they've introduced that dance macabre, devil's violin type motif, when the strings kind of respond with that, 
It's actually just a more intense variant of the thing that he introduced on Harpsichord at the start of the queue. But of course, repurposing it and rescoring it, it sounds like a totally different thing. Yeah, now part of this call and response thing, as you say, with that little violin theme, or fiddle theme, yeah. Those shorter motifs always seem like they're a reduction of that in some way. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the techniques that he utilizes in all the thriller scores is this sort of subtractive or this additive process where he'll present an idea, then he'll take stuff away from it, then he might extend it. It's just kind of like another weapon in the compositional arsenal, I suppose. But one of the things that really sort of like strikes me about this cue this goes back to something that we kind of mentioned at the start, and it's the clarity or the space in Goldsmith's scoring. I mean, essentially what you've got here is just two lines of music. You've got the upper part in the violins and violas doing the... And then you've literally just got a bass note in cellos and, and double basses accompanying that. But because of the language, language is really dissonant, the relationship between the top and the bottom part, and that space in between them, I mean, it creates such a cold effect. And if he'd written it closer together, it wouldn't be such a prominent gesture. But having this daylight, this space between the elements, it really sort of helps create this cold, this chill to the music. It's, it's amazing. opening mood and everything about it really catches your attention. Frankly, it made me much more optimistic about the episode to come than probably I should have been in terms of the execution of it. But the opening, I think, is maybe the strongest part of it. The thing that caught my attention the most actually occurs under the next piece of music, which starts off again when Francis runs off terrified. And Thomas then takes this brush of black ink and defaces her portrait with these slashing motions resulting in a pretty cool pattern that uh, resembles the Thriller logo, which can't be a coincidence. It's kind of a clever little visual gag that I enjoy. Yeah, the lines yeah. crisscrossing and everything. And, but this is where he introduces that two-note poison motif. I, I mean, this doesn't feel like a poisoner motif like we were discussing before. This, I think, maybe recognizes the poison itself. It's not a complex idea. It's just kind of like this is the poison being applied or something. One thing about the scratchy strings in this, and Lee, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like there is a bit of reverb going on with a lot of the strings in this score to kind of give them an ominous quality. Like it's deliberately wet in places. Yes, that's most definitely a thing with it. And also, I mean, the, the stuff that adds to the 
the overall weirdness of that is the fact because there's a Nova chord buried in the background as well, mm. which creates that sort of like weird little singing sound behind the main line. I really love that ending where the music breaks up and uh, you've got the Poisoner theme being played kind of deranged fashion in the violin. It's basically a variant on the main pastoral theme, but sort of played really aggressively. But of course, you put it in the middle of this dissonant sandwich with the violins going crazy and the basses slamming up these low notes. And the effect is carnage. But I think one of the interesting things about it is quite often it's down to Goldsmith's music to supply the dramatic impetus of the scene because it's not as though he goes totally bananas on the painting. I mean, he does it in quite a deliberate manner but he, he never seems out of control it's like goldsmith music lets us into the psychosis of the character or gives an insight into how deranged he actually is but it never it, it never sort of like fully manifests itself i don't think throughout the episode he's always understated as a character i think kind of one of the things that i suppose emphasizes that is once sarah marshall has run up the stairs in this scene that you're just left with this cello solo the, the cello solo is Batshit crazy. And he's not doing anything. <laughs> he's walking over to the fireplace. He's thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Goldsmith sort of, I guess, giving us an insight into what's going on in the character's mind rather than it's a guy walking over to the fireplace. It's an indication as to, I guess, how out of control he actually is. So what's the Goldsmith quote? I'm paraphrasing here, but about, you know, you don't score... The horse riding, you score the emotions of the rider. The fear. Yeah, yeah, the fear, the fear of, the rider. of the rider. Yes, that's yeah, it. Yeah. And and he does that sort of thing a lot, where he really kind of finds what's beneath the scene. That's definitely at play in this score as a as a whole. That solo cello section, is that related to any of the thematic material in the score, or is it just kind of a standalone little bit? That's a really good question, because I remember when when I was kind of doing the actual transcription, I remember looking through it and thinking, is there any tangible link? But it never seems to be the case. Whenever it goes into this mode where the style becomes somewhat more avant-garde, a, a little more angular, almost sounding a little bit like serialism or expressionism. It's kind of like he just opens the floodgates and just uses all the gnarly intervals he can possibly lay his hand on to make it sound as crazy as possible. I, I guess that he's just seeking for a point of contrast with the rest of the score. So the next cue we have is the introduction of that beautiful main theme in full as Boris Karloff steps up introducing the cast of characters. We now get Karloff to tell us some bubkis about how this guy's a great murderer. 
Now, in each of these arts, he displayed talent, but his real genius lay elsewhere. We have the testimony of Charles Lamb, Charles Dickens, Oscar Wilde, and other famous witnesses. The Griffith was the master of the gentle art of murder. As with the prologue, it sort of sets expectations a little bit higher than the episode might be able to deliver. But when he does get to introducing the cast after that, I, I did think that's it's kind of a nifty thing on this show, the way he actually introduces the actors and not just the characters. There's a kind of old-fashioned theatricality about the opening of this program that uh, is pretty nifty, I think. Yeah, I really loved it. And he does that introduction of the cast of characters to a very lovely cue by Jerry Goldsmith introducing the main melodic idea of the score. I guess, it, would it be fair to describe it as Baroque, Lee, on the solo harpsichord? That's as good a descriptor as any. It kind of traverses a couple of styles. Definitely the Baroque influence is there, but I think somebody mentioned earlier on that, that there's almost kind of a, a folky vibe to it, just, again, because of the harmony. The English that pastoral. Is. Yeah, yeah. So that's primarily what he's getting at with it. almost be like diegetic music to like a Tudor court scene. That's exactly what it brought to mind when I was listening to it. You can almost hear people being introduced as they walk into the palace for the royal ball or whatever. And Boylan walking past the crowds, you know. That's right. It's definitely movie style Tudor music. I wonder if it's because the main character imagines himself as royalty or, you know, aristocracy. You know, he's not recognized for the aristocracy that he wants to be recognized for. The episode starts out with him addressing a large group of friends and such, or acquaintances, about his recent marriage that I guess occurred earlier in the day. And We're at the wedding reception. Yeah, and he's speaking so poetically and in a complimentary way about his new wife, who he introduces. But we soon see things take a turn as soon as a couple of unexpected guests arrive. Didn't even invite us to the wedding. You ought to be ashamed. So you're the bridegroom. This is Francis's mother and sister, and it, it's kind of amusing to me how kind of stereotypically awful these people are right off the bat. I mean, they're just screeching, horrible characters who clearly have no real redeeming qualities, and uh, I, I think the episode wants you to root for them to be disposed of right off the bat. <laughs> well, they've got these annoying Cockney accents, and obviously it, Francis has spent a while eradicating hers to sound more upper class or something. We basically learned that Thomas and Francis each married for money and deceived each other about being wealthy. So 
Here we have two people who clearly deserve each other. Even if Thomas feels that he doesn't deserve to be stuck with Frances and her unexpected live-in relatives. My perfect bride. Where are you going? Don't! Don't you dare touch Mama! gonna strike me his own mother-in-law on his wedding day what kind of a man did you marry anyhow i don't know i don't know he's a murderer helen he's a murderer i saw it in his eyes so jerry's put in a few cues that you know have little elements of the pastoral theme and the solo violin scratchy but the next substantial cue that he he brings that main melody back on violin, I believe, when the mother-in-law is making herself comfortable in her new home. Yep. Just plops down and savors her drink. This is where that theme sounds almost ironic. <laughs> the orchestration style just pushes that theme even further into decadence than it already was. She's pretending at being as fancy as he is, and the music captures that. Yeah, it's definitely a thing with this, because I mean, the way in which he presents the theme this time, he's doing it with a string quartet. And he's changed the style of it, so it, it almost sounds like oh, it's like a. It could almost be a piece of Schubert. It's that sort of like sophisticated drawing room type chamber music setting, which I think you're right. It's definitely an ironic comment on these idiots <laughs> who are trying to be sophisticated and failing miserably. But we get a neat little transition to later that evening. Time passing is covered by kind of a dramatic harpsichord flourish. And then that instrument dominates most of the rest of this longer cue. Yeah, the bulk of the cue is a suspense piece, which kind of alternates between some of that trilling harpsichord material we talked about, and also variations on that little two-note idea as he's sort of preparing and plotting to poison Mrs. Abercrombie.
this scene is kind of odd with his mother-in-law. Like, it seems like he's eager for an out. He keeps saying, will you work with me? Can we make this situation work? And then later when she's helping herself to the wine, he is like, are you sure you want to drink that? Like, he wants it to be her idea or something. That just struck me as like very basic and obvious reverse psychology he was doing. Yeah. And of course, Helen witnesses this entire scene from above at the top of the stairs. So he's being very obvious about the (laughs) fact that he's poisoning this woman. This is also kind of a conventional sophisticated villain trope where basically he has to convince himself of the rightness of this by at least making the gesture of giving her a chance to play by his rules and get what he wants to get done done. And when she doesn't, he, of course, embraces the opportunity to kill her. But that's something you see a lot with these types of characters. I don't know whether this is going to be a spoiler problem, but obviously he only ever offs two people with poison in the episode. But it's kind of curious that on both occasions, he actually uses pretty much the same piece of music for the act of poisoning somebody twice. It happens with the mother and later on with the other character. For each of those instances, also the spotting is exactly the same. Like the music is in the exact same place, playing the exact same role every time. Yes. It's almost like a piece of theater music where you create a specific piece of music that one can associate with certain actions. And it it seems as though that's very much the case with this, that if he's going to poison somebody when he's in the process of doing away with them, this is the music that will accompany it. I found the repetition curious because out of all the thriller scores that, um, I would say all of them, the ones that I've looked at for the albums, I've never come across any other example of direct repetition in any of the scores except for this one. Yeah, and it starts out very low-key, and it gets to a point where the two-note motif comes in, and this sort of climbing low harpsichord in the background is broken off by the sisters' scream, discovering the body, and that's when we get a very pained and distorted version of the lovely main melody. Yeah, it's a brief moment, but a wonderful little uh, musical conclusion here, this kind of very tormented version of that main theme. right at the start, 
you mentioned a few times that the television scores are sometimes they, they can be precursors to stuff that we hear in Goldsmith's filmography. <laughs> the one thing that's sort of like really stuck in my mind, I remember when I was doing the transcript, that harpsichord figuration that Yamal was talking about. I remember the first time I listened to that, I thought, Jesus, that's basic instinct. If you imagine some of the more sort of like sinister parts in Basic mm-hmm. Instinct, and you imagine that line played on a low piano over a, a really, really low pedal. Can you play some to illustrate? Oh, yeah, yeah, like, like, like Roxy Dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got that low sort of like piano ostinato over, you know, just over like a simple bass before the cues break out again. But I mean, it's such a similar approach. I was kind of just mildly freaked out when I heard it because uh, all I could hear was this low octave piano stuff. I thought, wow, it's going to be some like 30 odd years before we hear something like this again. That's fascinating. So the next cue that struck our fancy underscores the arrival of our main trio, back from the funeral, I'm assuming, of Mrs. Abercrombie, also accompanied by a man named Mr. Proctor, who is the executor of Mrs. Abercrombie's estate, and they're back at Thomas's place. And this cue is a wonderful example, I feel, of Goldsmith building a cue around, you know, a single motif, that primary poisoner motif. And he's got a melody to kind of connect all the different statements of it, but it just seems like this cue in particular is like a smorgasbord of cool variations of this particular motif put on different instrumentation and all that. There's not a lot going on in this scene. It's basically just the lawyer coming into the house, but it's a really cool mood piece the way he uses this. It's a short cue, but it really sets a mood. Would you guys call it mournful or melancholy? I'm not sure exactly what it is. Mm, Brooding, I would say. My adjective of choice. Yeah, those strings at the beginning. I mean, I would say funereal, but Mm. I mean, that's a bit on the nose considering (laughs) that they are coming back from a funeral. Right. But over that melodic string writing the harpsichord joins in soon after with these little punctuations throughout it which were interesting stuck out to me as well. It's, it's one of the reasons that I included it in the suite is because I couldn't get over what he was doing with the harmony. I mean, for Goldsmith, it's a typical technique, this idea of shifting into parallel keys. You know, he shifts the harmony into places where one wouldn't expect that he'd go to, especially if he's dealing with minor sonorities. It kind of gives a real sort of unsettled, broody, moody type of feel to it. And 
I think superimposing the pastoral theme over it, but in long form. So it's all really long drawn out melody, a long drawn out melodic line. You hardly recognize it as the theme because the harmony has been changed to such an extent that, you know, it makes it sound like a completely different piece. And there's a cue in Blue Max, I think. Katie has a plan which uses exactly the same techniques. You've kind of got like the single motif, which is derived from the Blue Max theme. But what he does with it harmonically is like nobody's business. It just creates this wonderful kind of nebulous, mysterious atmosphere. It closely sort of like parallels what we see in this one. I, I love it. It's a really shiny little cube. After another cue, which you'll hear at the end of our episode, we have an interesting scene with his uncle. This character is introduced who he's depended upon financially, I suppose, but they don't like each other at all. Yeah, basically what we learned from the executor is that Mrs. Abercrombie's will leaves her remaining estate to whichever daughter is still unmarried. So Thomas misses out on what little money he could have gotten out of that. And Francis goes over Thomas's head and calls in George for financial assistance, who immediately appears and makes himself a permanent house guest as well. <laughs> also important to mention in their conversation is that he's still upset about Thomas once forging his signature on a bank draft. Uh, of course, Thomas promptly poisons George, and Helm once again witnesses it. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty incompetent at covering things up when he's trying to kill somebody. No, no, he's a master of the subtle art of murder. Did you not hear? <laughs> I was really expecting it to be surprising when characters passed away, like maybe even a gradual poison or something. <laughs> nope, it's just, oh, you're dead. Oh, well, you're a problem now, so bye. And with no real preparation or planning, he just does it, and whoever sees it happens to see it, and that's that. Yep. So this next cue, I guess, it does it come in as his uncle is... As he starts to choke, yeah. Speaking of looking forward to feature scores, I thought that the kind of pained string harmonies in this foreshadowed Freud a little bit, or even yes. seconds more with the high string trills. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's because of that doubling with a Nova chord as well, too, in the trills. It's, it's got that real kind of like eerie feel to it. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a Freud and, and seconds vibe to it.
So to set the scene after the commercial break where it's revealed that his uncle is actually going to recover and be just fine, there's this brief little scene setting cue where it's the main melody on harpsichord, and I thought it creates a nice little mood to set that scene, so wanted to play it for folks. The doctor waves this incident off as just another heart attack, and Thomas then makes the snap decision to try again immediately. <laughs> I love that he he's just like, oh, well, we'll just do this again. The exact same approach to murder. Once more with feeling. <laughs> no subtlety, like no concern of how it would look or reflect on him after he's, you know, forced the drink again. He puts his faith entirely on the untraceableness of this poison. Mm-hmm. Like he basically figures like as long as they can't prove definitively that this was murder i'm okay and my wife can't testify against me for some reason because i i did not know this about just like i didn't know that double jeopardy was a thing in uh, 19th century english courts so that was interesting to learn (laughs) this is also an instance of people benefiting a little bit from living in a time in which people died randomly for all kinds of reasons because of the medical limitations of the era so a little bit more easy to get away with people just dying around you left and right but this next cue is pretty interesting when, after he's uh, forced his uncle to drink yet more poison, this cue starts out with this weird percussive sound that I wanted to ask Lee about. This like crash, like this booming, booming crash. With yeah, it's this... like, look, look, look. yeah, it's like a thumping that's there with the harpsichord. And I was just wondering, is that somebody whacking the harpsichord? It doesn't sound like it's a normal percussion instrument there. Oh, do you uh, have any insight? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is this, uh, are we talking about the cue where we get the psycho sliding down the stairs shot? Yeah, this is where Helen once again (laughs) catches Thomas in the act of trying to poison George and he pushes her down the stairs. This particular part, I was, uh, when I rewatched it this afternoon, I forgot how effective it was. It's amazing what he does with it, really, is it? because it's, in a way, it's kind of a completely sort of juxtapositional approach to what's going on on screen, which is absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, to quote Edward, he's lurking her. She's being lurked, <laughs> and he's, he's not doing anything else. She's kind of, you know, wheeling herself out very, very slowly, and he's just looking generally threatening. And yet, you've got this driving kind of, you know, harpsichord stuff, and those jagged interjections from the strings. I mean, he absolutely turns the sequence into a roller coaster action cue, which somehow manages to just drive the scene forward when there's really nothing going on. There's just that kind of carefree way in which he'll approach this particular part of the scene that just generates this intensity or this excitement when if we played this without music, it would probably be pretty dull. I would say this might be the most important cue in the score or the most impressive one. I don't know if it's my favorite because I enjoy the more melodic stuff, but this one's you know over three minutes long and it feels like the most is going on and it, he's achieving the most with this in terms of aiding the episode. There's actually the pretty string writing comes back, but with the uneasy harpsichord ornamentations coming over it. And there's this 
kind of foreboding section as he's ascending the stairs. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite moment in the whole thing. Where he's walking up the stairs and he just shoves the cat. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cruel. No, no, no. Don't worry, cat lovers. The cat lands on its feet. Yeah, right. But he just like violently <laughs> whacks this cat off of the banister. And then that's when these uh, threatening ghostly high strings with the low strings playing, a, I think, the poisoning motif but below. That plays as he mixes more poison. And then once you get towards the end of this cue, this is probably the closest the score gets to, you know, like action music. The action cue starts after his uncle expires and he realizes the sister's been watching. So that's when he's menacing her to the stairs and she falls backwards. That's when it gets action-y. There's a, at the very end of this, too, there's a really nice um, melodramatic flourish uh, rooted in the main theme. That's a pretty cool finish to this. Yeah. It's a small orchestra, but I think the whole orchestra is going there for that forceful version of it. Yes.
So obviously at this point, Francis has had it, and she's ready to confront Thomas, which kicks off the next Goldsmith cue. A pretty exciting passage here. There are these violent stabs of the strings for the reveal of the dead cat. The cat has not died because he shoved it roughly. The cat went and lapped up some of the poisoned uh, drink and his wife notices. Well, that's what the filmmakers tell us. (laughs) (laughs) But this progresses to another action cue. This action cue is maybe a bit more rhythmically strong as his wife's running away down the stairs. Would that be an ostinato that's kind of, you know, rhythmically driving it before that final violin statement of the main theme and a few more string stabs? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, now we're talking about it, that you've had problems deciding which cues to leave off or leave out of the program. So you can imagine what it was like having to <laughs> jettison them from the album. Uh-huh. I, mean, this, I, I went back and forth on this stuff for weeks, just like scratching things out of the notebook, putting them back in. I mean, every cue is significant in the episode, which is a real problem. This one didn't make it onto the album, but I, I remember with this that one of the things that really struck me is, is kind of how he uses silence to build tension. I think more than any other cue, we've got this idea of the music kind of like stopping and starting in places. And this terrific idea of just sustaining a long note and then finishing it with sort of like quite a heavy punctuation during the conversation. Really sort of like, it, it builds tension on a knife edge. It's brilliant what he does under the dialogue in the sequence. It's amazing. this point the corpses have piled up to such a degree <laughs> that the police really cannot ignore francis's protestations any longer and then when they finally find helen with a broken neck they have to haul thomas off to jail at that point i like the way that thomas treats this too where, where basically the uncle and the cat and helen are all dead at the same time and he's just like oh what a weird coincidence all these people <laughs> dying all at once and there's this really creepy reveal where the music starts he pulls aside something and the dead sister is revealed there in the wheelchair. He's, you know, propped her up. He reveals her like he's very proud of it. It's so <laughs> creepy. And I mean, it's one of the more effective creepy moments in the episode. And Jerry starts it off with this pained solo violin. And shortly after that, he returns to being his cultured erudite self, I suppose, in the, the melodic section with the main melodic theme comes back. I think it's a string quartet again, right, Lee? Yeah. And then it expands to a fuller orchestra. But before this lovelier section of the cue, it's just really um, uncomfortable. Yeah, it's almost become the theme for how smug he is about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is an almost kind of dry humor to the way Goldsmith uses that main theme in this cue.
Thomas is convinced that the fact that all the evidence is circumstantial is going to save him. And he's right, because whatever poison he's using, the coroners can't really find any evidence of it. You think, Mr. Griffith, that you've won a great victory over English law? Being free and clear by Lord Danforth's decision is hardly a defeat. It isn't over, Mr. Griffith. It can't be over. I beg to differ. There's a statute concerning double jeopardy. Having been arraigned and charged, and Her Majesty's Chief Justice having ruled, there was not even sufficient evidence to place me on trial. I cannot be charged again for the same alleged crimes. All London is up in arms against you, Mr. Griffith. And I shan't consider my duty as done until you are penned and punished. The baffled bloodhound baying at the unreachable moon. On the day of his discharge, Thomas also curiously spends the bank draft that he forged his uncle's signature on as a tip for his fellow prisoners. Yeah, it's, he's very generous all of a sudden. It mostly seems like just kind of an act of smugness more than anything else. A kind of, I'm getting away with this goodwill gesture. Right, like he's flaunting the wealth he doesn't have. Right, it's more designed to sort of rub this in the authorities' faces than anything else. This cue is maybe reflecting his smugness or his self-satisfied air because it plays his cultured theme on harpsichord again, then joined by strings, but some dissonant chords on harpsichord, again, they kind of mar that lovely melody when a clue is revealed that will later be significant. I think this is the only point in the score where... He kind of goes, as I say, octatonic with the scale that he's using, which is kind of like a very sort of like Stravinskyan thing to do. We get that moment that we when you see the signature and it's being sort of strip-lighted, you know, the name and then the signature, and you get this kind of thing. Is that supposed to be so like representative somehow of, you know, the clock striking or some chimes of doom? Uh, it does sound like a clock striking 12. Time's up. Yep, yeah. I love it. Yeah, because it, we don't get a gesture, anything like this in the rest of the score. Yeah, a really clever bit of musical storytelling, drawing attention to that clue. It definitely stands out. It intrudes over the familiar melody. sure we want to break for spoilers like i don't know if it's like that extreme of no a... no i think we should preserve the nature of the doom uh, and i think this is a great stopping point narratively <laughs> okay fair enough so if you want to watch this episode you can actually find a lot of these thrillers and this including this one on youtube at the moment or obviously you can uh, uh, buy the image entertainment set which is very good though now out of print but still readily available i think for 50 bucks on ebay and about 85 bucks on amazon and for most episodes, though not all, for most of the Goldsmith and Morton Stevens episodes anyway, those Image Entertainment DVDs have isolated music and effects tracks. So it's the way you can hear the rest of Jerry's work sans dialogue that wasn't preserved on the Tadlow new recordings. 
And the quality is comparable. I, I think it's maybe a little bit worse looking than the old Image Entertainment Twilight Zone releases, but it's about on that level in terms of what you're getting value-wise. It's a great set. Obviously, for anyone besides absolute completionists like us who care about every single cue, you'll be more than happy, I think, with the two excellent volumes so far on Tadlow Music, where the music is recorded in a modern recording, and you don't have to deal with any sound effects. Yeah, those are an essential part of any Goldsmith fan's collection, I think. Yeah, I hope that third volume happens. Me too. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about what we thought of the episodes, and then what we thought of the music. For the episode, despite its faults, you know, it's leaps of logic or lack of therein. I just love it because of the sheer ludicrousness of the whole scenario. I mean, for me, it's a 10, and that's just for the cat and Sarah Marshall. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the cat's the best part. If it was all as entertaining as him shoving that cat, I would probably rate it a 10 too. <laughs> but I'm going to distance myself from you a bit because I think overall the episode could have been executed a lot better than it was. I'm going to land at a 5.5 because I think it was passable. It was a journeyman job. But I think that without Jerry's music, there's not a whole lot of strengths going on in terms of its effect on me while watching it. Like, it's got its moments that are more effective, particularly that opening. But, you know, each murder is so clumsy and it wasn't what it promised to be from Karloff's introduction for me. The thing about this episode that makes it a little bit tricky for me is one of its chief weaknesses is also one of its chief virtues, and that is the pace. I don't feel like, uh, on a certain level, this story needed to be a full 50 minutes. There are quite a few scenes that feel like they just kind of drag quite a bit and that they're just filling airtime. But at the same time, without those and without all of that air in the narrative, you don't have nearly as much time for Goldsmith to do the wonderful things that he does. So in a sense, that kind of gives him a much richer canvas than he might have had to work with. I'm a little conflicted about that. I I thought the episode was okay. I do think Murray Matheson's performance is pretty good, but this one is a five out of 10 for me. I think it just didn't, aside from some of the more kind of memorable individual moments and the overall atmosphere of certain scenes, it didn't quite work for me. But Certainly enjoyed watching it because of what Goldsmith does with this episode. That's a huge part of this one's effectiveness for me. Yeah, you guys have basically headed my own review off at the pass. I have very little to add, and I know I've been very opinionated throughout the podcast, so I I think it's kind of clumsy watching this guy bungle his way from victim to victim in a way that leaves little room for surprise, except for being surprised by his ineptness. But I will agree with Lee that this episode is very stylish and extremely moody, and has a lot of great shots and a noirish feel to it that I really appreciate. Some of my favorite shots coming up in the spoiler section. And I agree with Lee, Sarah Marshall is standout. No way in heck would I poison Sarah Marshall if Sarah Marshall were my wife. I think forgetting Sarah Marshall would be quite difficult for me. (laughs) Poisoning Sarah Marshall. I knew that was going to come up at some point. Yeah. I was trying to resist, but yeah. And I did warm up to it quite a bit doing notes on this podcast. I actually, I think it is quite good, especially for a piece of anthology television from this era. I mean, it's not Twilight Zone quality, but I do think it's probably a 6.5. Fair enough. I think it's the story and the script that lets it down the most. If that had been handled better, I feel like all of the direction, the technical elements are good. Mm. 
Okay, so it ends up with an average rating of 6.75. There you go. All right, and now let's move on to the music. Lee, where would you put this as Goldsmith's work? I, I mean, I guess if you rated the episode a 10, you've got to rate Goldsmith's score a 10 as well out of 10. Um, yeah, without, uh, without a shadow. Do you, uh, I mean, do you feel that, I guess, the episode fully deserves Goldsmith's contribution? He wasn't, you know, writing above the level of the episode he was scoring? I think the music is definitely one of the standout features of the episode. I mean, as everybody said, I mean, it is a ludicrous piece of television, really. I've just got a huge fondness for it, but, I mean, the score has got to be a 10 any day and twice on Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, for myself, just because of the fact that we're grading these on a scale against other Goldsmith works, I can't go as high as a 10, but I'm going to land at a 7 out of 10 because it's working overtime and it's actually a fairly complex work with, you know, a number of different motifs as we discussed at the beginning, which he plays with very effectively creating the mood and supporting what for me was a weaker episode. So I liked the music noticeably better than the episode itself. And it's easy for me to land on a seven out of 10, which, you know, is like three and a half stars out of five. You know, it's not among his very strongest work for me, but it's certainly memorable and unique and effective in the episode. I really like this score. It's one that grew on me with repeat listens as I was kind of going back and examining it this week. But I will admit, I'm kind of a sucker for this sort of atmosphere anyway. I, I really like the kind of harpsichord-driven gothic atmosphere that he creates there, and I could listen to that sort of thing all day long. But it's a really interesting score. It's got a lot of different pieces that connect in a lot of interesting ways. And yeah, very rewarding little effort. I would put this up there with some of his better Twilight Zone work. So for me, this one is an 8 out of 10. Yeah. I agree with that. To be honest, I start out thinking that, uh, though unlike you, I start out thinking that the score is just not in my personal wheelhouse, and it's not the kind of score I usually gravitate toward. But of course, Jerry is great in any genre, and hearing it in context and doing notes on it, I ended up really falling for that central poisoner motif and all of its variants, and then taking into account just how much the score adds to the episode, how it basically saves the episode, I think. And how brilliantly Goldsmith once again utilizes the incredibly limited time and resources at hand. It becomes hard to argue that this is anything but the best possible score for this episode. The sense of dread it generates and that eerie harpsichord, it just burrows its way into your brain over time. And it has an authentic period feel. It's a score that does a lot with a little in the best possible way. So I agree, I'm also going to give this an 8. Though I, I, I want to say, in my heart, Lee, I completely agree with you, in, in my heart it's a 10. Every Goldsmith score, almost every Goldsmith score is a 10 in my heart, and it's only because we have to grade things on a relative curve that we give that I give lower scores. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say, since I'm the lowest, or the person with the lowest rating of this, I will completely concede that there's not really a weak link at any part of this one. I'm, I rated Jerry's score for that Have Gun Well Travel episode, uh, Ahead of Hair, higher than this, just because it was more personally enjoyable and engaging to me. But that score, where it had some weak links, it ended up being more memorable overall, but that was kind of because of this great theme and when it was used. But this score doesn't have any moments in it that I would point and say, oh, that's a lesser part. This one is very cohesive and of a whole. 
And it was hard to pick what cues to leave off because it was not like there was an obvious drop in quality here and there. Like, it would have been easier to leave off a couple cues from the Western score, I think. Right. Like, it's not like, oh, here's this bit that kind of sounds like his library music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this was a, a really consistent effort, even if I didn't rate it as highly because it wasn't as immediately engaging to me. Well, and I think that's an entirely fair way to rate something. How you respond to it personally is an important part of that. So what works for you is... Um you know, what works for you. Okay, so I've done the calculations and our average rating for the score is 8.25. Nice. And now what I'm going to do is divide that number by our average rating for the episode, 6.75, to see what our goldsmith ratio is. We land at a goldsmith ratio of 1.2. Yep, just like a Twilight Zone. There you go. We'll be back with spoilers after the beat. So now it is time for us to find out whether or not Thomas Griffith, Thomas Edward Griffith, I should say, is forced to face the consequences for his terrible actions, despite the fact that he has been released from prison. Is fate going to catch up with him? Well, turns out that getting away with your crime in court doesn't necessarily matter in the court of public opinion, Mm. because uh, uh, he soon has to escape from an angry mob. Which he only is able to thanks to a friend we saw earlier at his wedding reception who seems to owe him something. He cares about this asshole for some reason. Well, yeah, we haven't talked about that minor character, but whatever. Well, I mean, I think that's all we need to say about him. Yeah. The one other thing I will say about him is he has a nice little throwaway line where he just says, Now you're fallen as Lucifer fell. I was going to play that clip, actually. Oh, there you go. Hmm. But still, I must disappoint you, Mr. Larrymore. I cannot run off and hide. I have a rendezvous to keep. I beg you, Mr. Griffith, do not go to your wife. Did she send you here to plead her cause? I'm thinking only of you. You were on a pedestal. Now you've fallen as Lucifer fell. But still, something might be saved. I beg you, Mr. Griffith. The mob is coming. They'll stone you, Mr. Griffith. They'll hang you if they can. Go before it's too late. Okay, I'm going to break the rules this one time because I just have to share the cue title here that Clark made up, I think. Okay. (laughs) Because of our conversation last episode about James Horner cue titles. And this is actually taken right out of dialogue in the episode. But for me, this is such a James Hornery sounding cue title. Unbearable agony infinitely prolonged. <laughs> and it just sounds like something a Horner would have come up with if he had scored this. Yeah, I, I know Jerry probably never would have gone for that, but uh, I couldn't resist when I heard that in the dialogue. No, it would be called The Warning. Right, exactly. Yep. <laughs> the threat. The mob. <laughs> so the cue opens up with these string stabs, this action-y music while he flees the mob, and then this uh, string motif as it transitions to him getting home, and we return to the visual motif we had at the very beginning of the episode with him ruining his wife's portrait that he painted. This uh, stabbing string material seems in a similar ballpark to the stuff that was featured uh, when they found out the cat had been murdered earlier in the episode. I don't know if it's exactly the same. It's like a stinger. 
Yeah, but the same sort of stabbing feel to it. Right. Well, when he's um, threatening his wife with the poison, doesn't that two-note kind of, you know, that stepwise or whatever motif for the poison come back at this point? It does. Yeah, exactly. The score has a tendency to be a little more summative as it gets towards the end, where everything that was introduced earlier on the episode starts to make an appearance, you know, a last hurrah, as it were. Before Thomas can put his questionable plan into practice, the police arrive, and his wife is saved. And though he can't be tried again for this crime because of double jeopardy, while the crime of poisoning he was accused of, it is the forging of George's signature that proves to be his downfall. It's discovered because of the note he left with the policeman for his fellow prisoners and their trip to Australia. That's when that comes back. They Al Caponed him. I robbed no one. The money was mine. If that is, I I anticipated time a little. You confess to forgery in the presence of these witnesses? No matter if I do, I'm not under oath or on trial. But you will be, Mr. Griffith. You will be. And the penalty for uttering false paper under the law at which Mr. Griffith has laughed until this moment is transportation to Australia as a prisoner at hard labor in the penal colonies for life with no possibility of parole. So as he contemplates his options, of course, he decides to take his own poison. And Jerry's final original cue in this score, it begins with another one of those thumps, the percussive effects. A poisoning has happened, cue. Yeah, that's when he picks up his drink and then that uh, rumbly, threatening harpsichord motif 
plays and then we actually get I think like a little bit more extended development here of that two note poison motif it feels like Jerry plays with it a little bit more than usual here before the solo harpsichord comes with the pretty theme at the close yeah it's a nice kind of rich lush finish to this cue and to the score as a whole and in fact those last 30 seconds were responsible for at least one point in my rating I just love this closing shot, you know, the camera pulling away from the door of that wreath and that last restatement of the theme. A wonderful way to go out. This was a loss to the suite because that ending is absolutely stunning. It kind of goes back to one of the early cues where, as I mentioned, those slightly unexpected harmonic shifts under the melody, which just send it off into a totally different place. The close of this cue is just amazing. Should have recorded it. I blame myself. (laughs) No, what you did put together is a really wonderful representation of this score and uh, a treat for anybody, I think. You've got to make hard decisions. definitely want to thank you for joining us and taking the time to discuss the score that you worked on and really bring that expert insight from your in-depth work on it. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure to hear you offer your take on the score, having worked with it so closely. It's been my pleasure, really. I mean, it's lovely to actually be able to go back and revisit it because, of course, this was two years ago. So um, it was nice to get reacquainted with it. And um, yeah, thanks for asking. And congratulations on such a great podcast as well. It's really entertaining and I, I think pretty damn informative as well. I've certainly picked up stuff that uh, you know I didn't know about Goldsmith's earlier scores. So yeah, I'm a listener. greatly appreciated. We want to thank everybody for tuning into the program today. We always greatly appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Goldsmith Odyssey, and we would encourage you, uh, if you enjoy the show, to leave us a review on iTunes. That's always very helpful. If you have any other questions or comments, concerns, anything at all, please feel free to send us an email, mail at goldsmithodyssey.com. And we also encourage you once again to subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. That way. You'll never miss an episode, and it will be right there waiting on your device of choice for you when a new one is released. Yavar, uh, what are we doing next time? Well, next time, as we indicated earlier, we're going to go back and finish off the year 1960 with Jerry's very final work that year and first work for Thriller, The Cheaters. 
but having this daylight, this space between the elements, it really sort of helps create this cold, this chill to the music. It's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's so well said. It's always exciting when we have somebody who really knows music on this program to articulate what Goldsmith is doing with some of these ideas he comes up with. Finally, I am revealed as the amateur that I am. (laughs) Not at all. I've learned a lot by listening to this program. We're going to go back and finish off the year 1960 with Jerry's very final work that year and first work for Thriller, The Cheaters. But alas, that will also be the first proper Goldsmith Odyssey episode without me, as I am stepping back from being a host and editor on the show. I realized that being on the two-week schedule last year, I was burning out pretty hard. And even on a more relaxed schedule, I don't think I can fit that amount of work into my life at the moment. We've worn you out plenty. Well, worry not, though. The show will go on, because our secret fourth member, W. David Lichty, who you'll remember from the CBS Library Music episodes and the Man on the Beach episode, agreed to step into my role. I will continue to make all the episode art, and I've promised Yavar I would continue to produce and edit his interviews. So it's not like I'm not involved anymore. You're going to come back as a host occasionally, of course, when it's something you feel strongly in love with. I'm thinking maybe The Spiral Road, maybe something earlier, we'll see. But yeah, when, when I'm, I'll be back as a guest. Good long vacation first. The thing that kept me going, honestly, the last couple of uh, uh, shows is that I knew that Lee was coming. And Lee is a hero of mine, so I couldn't miss Lee. That's very kind. Thanks, Jim. And you've launched us off into the Thrillerverse, where we will be spending a lot of time over the next year. It's a long road when you're on your own And it hurts when they tear your dreams apart Use a friend.